0: I think for me, as you are trying to build bridges, try not to do it too quickly. Try to have experiments together that are enjoyable and sustainable, and do it in a way that if it doesn't work, you don't burn anyone and don't hurt anybody. And you can just come back to what you were doing. We don't laugh at failure, but when things don't work, we name it and say, that's a lesson, what can we learn from it? And how can we move on?
1: Welcome back to the Shock Resorber podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are excited to have you along with us. And of course, I have my usual co-host joining me. Tim, how are you?
2: I'm very well, thank Excellent. you, Joel.
1: You are wearing a denim jacket. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that I am. <laughs>
1: Good eyes, Joel. Good eyes. <laughs> well done. Well noticed. <laughs> well spotted. And, <laughs> and Stu, you are wearing a very loud shirt yes. this evening. Because you went to a loud concert last I night. I went to a
0: loud concert last night and I bought a concert t-shirt and I came home and my wife saw my new concert t-shirt and she said, that's hideous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know
1: if it's hideous. Well, oh, it's I think it's really cool. For people who are on YouTube, I'll give you a little glance. Yep. This is the Says Hoodoo Gurus and the Dandy Warhols on it. Is that, I'm assuming that's who you saw last yes, night. Yes, no,
0: actually we saw the uh, Philharmonic Orchestra of <laughs> Chamber Converse.
2: Chamber Converse? G- g- goodness <laughs> goodness they've got their own Philharmonic Orchestra, that's great.
0: <laughs> no, I did go to see the... the <laughs> <laughs> And um, it was fantastic. It's one of my favorite. well oh, actually, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to say it's my favourite Australian band. Really? So there you go. I thought I'd Radio
1: Birdman was your favourite band.
0: Well, I know. I was there in the concert last night and I'm like, oh, you shifted. know what? <laughs> I don't know. It's massive. Like, first time in 30 years, I've, I've now gone and thought, I, I've always loved Birdman more than Hoodoo Gurus. And some of our audience are going to be like, who are these people? <laughs> Google them. Do yourself a, a favour. <laughs> YouTube. Radio Birdman, terrific Australian band. Yep. Hoodoo Gurus, I just think hoodoo last gurus night's a, a concert was the best. It really. was so good. I first saw them in 1987 <laughs> at Salinas at Coogee Bay Hotel with my wife Louise, who wow. at the time we were going out. And um, so, yeah, they're a very, very cool band. They're good. Wow. Songs like Bittersweet. Yep. Tojo, Never Made It To Darwin. <laughs> Miss Free Love sixty. I know that one. Yeah, real bangers, what's real the classics. <laughs> yeah,
1: what's your favourite Hoodoo Gurus? Like? <laughs>
0: it's not, the, the lyrics are... Like, Great, but I, I love this free <laughs> love sixty nine. <laughs> and for years, I just used to rock off, rock around, and you know, rock into it. And then one day, I, I read the lyrics and went, "Oh, okay, that's interesting."
1: That's a bit of a pattern with you. I remember another time we had a song, and he's like, "I'm going to present this song at our council one." <laughs> and I was like, "No, don't do that one." <laughs> and then they showed me the lyrics. Yeah, yeah I, I sometimes get <laughs> get carried away
0: with how a song sounds, and um yeah. So there you go, it's cool. the hoodoo gurus. Yeah, right
1: well, why did we bring up the cruise? I don't even know why we we're using that as a well, story. Well, we,
0: we <laughs> were thinking of, you. I think you're being polite to start off with, but I think we were thinking of a cultural <laughs> artefact. Yes,
1: that's true. But I was trying to think of how it related to what we're talking about, because we're talking about, you know, our, our, um, our season is on uh, momentum in ministry, and we're using that uh, book by Tom Rainer called Breakout Churches to kind of inform how we st- start thinking about this. But I was trying to think about why we were actually using it. But I can't remember well, Do yeah, remember I, I, Well, uh, yeah, I, I
0: do remember. Um, yeah, we are riffing off uh, Tom Rayner's book and just comparing our approach to his approach. There's some similarities, some differences. Just helpful to have a reference point there. But um, in terms of today, I think you were saying to me that you were interested in a wake-up call moment. Yep. thank you. And I mentioned to you that last night I was at the Hoodoo Gurus and at one point in the concert I was so into it that I forgot... <laughs> what decade I was in, (laughs) and when all the lights went on, I turned around and looked at everyone and I went, wow, how did we get old straight away? So in my head somehow, I was back in 1987, and it was like one of those... um, uh, what was it, the Twilight Zone episodes where you go to a concert and you're all young and then the lights go off and you have the concert and then they turn the lights on and everyone's instantly old. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but it wasn't so much uh, a science fiction moment. It was actually a wake-up call because it was like, I realise how old we're all getting. So mm. all these uh, pe- fans of the, of the Hoodoo Gurus from the 80s, we we're all in our late 40s, 50s and there was some people who were older than that there last night. So, yeah, it wasn't quite... Um, yeah, it wasn't quite a uh, wake-up call, but yeah, that, there you go. I yeah, think right.
1: that cultural moment was quite interesting. Thank you for reminding me, because I forgot why we chose to, to talk about <laughs> that. That was cool. Um, and we are talking about momentum in ministry. We're talking about uh, a wake-up call, as Tom Rayner likes to term it. Now, we should also make it clear that Tom Rainer's, Tom Rayner's Breakout Churches uh, utilises Good to Great, which is a book by Jim Collins, which is based on businesses, Um, And sometimes we think that maybe the language is maybe a little bit too harsh occasionally, the way that we're talking about churches. But he also says that good churches do not become breakout churches until the leaders confront uh, the reality of where the church is at. And he's talking very much as like, especially in America, he thinks that a lot of churches are on a slow decline. That's kind of something that we talked about in uh, the previous uh, season on evangelism, where he was talking about the Barna research and where we think we were, that what that was actually revealing to us, and all those kind of things. Um, and he also says that unlike the corporate world, churches often don't aren't keen to review the reality that they're actually in, and then perhaps they don't understand why they're possibly declining. Um, and it's quite some difficult language. He says they move slowly toward death, but no one is willing to make the patient make sure the patient isn't sick so i think that's a little bit harsh on some people i think
0: it's a bit harsh too yeah Yeah,
1: sometimes but i think it's worthwhile to look at that to understand what we're trying to talk about and how we engage with it engage with it and try and develop momentum in ministry of what he's actually saying so one of the big things he says in um a major chapter is he calls the abc moment which is uh, stands for awareness belief and then a crisis which is a almost like a process that leaders and also the church congregations will go through before they um, realize that they might need to make some changes. But his main point is that awareness is the first step, is realizing there might need to be a a change to be made. My first question to you guys is, can you think of a time when you realized you came to that point, a a moment of awareness that you thought that in your ministry that you might need to change? Tim, you haven't um, said much, do you want to go first?
2: I'm happy to go first. I'm just trying to think, think of, of a moment <laughs> of um, that has happened. Um, I Always like to throw you guys under the bus. Yeah, that's questions. right. That's right. Um, <laughs> the question is a moment of awareness. Um, sorry,
1: that's okay. Do you want to go? Shoot? Yes. Have you got one?
0: Yes. Well, we we have talked about it a fair few times, but. My biggest moment of awareness was when we first started Soul Revival right? and it's the 30th anniversary of Soul Revival this year and um, in the 1980s there was uh, a strong youth group at my church, 40 of my friends were going to youth group but then during the next, well during the two years after school when everyone got their, their driver's license, most of my friends left one by one and over time it wasn't noticeable. But eventually, it was very noticeable because they left gradually and stopped coming to the evening service. And in one night, I was sitting in the pew at the back of church by myself in the same pew that we had sat in right through the whole decade, sitting there passing notes back in the day before mobile phones, um, talking about surf, you know, talking about uh, bands, what bands we're going to go see, and things like that, and. You know who was going out with who and uh you know we we used to pack into this pew at the back of the or a couple of pews at the back of the church and uh we could we were all sandwiched in there together and and then one night uh it was thinning out over time but then one night i was sitting in the pew by myself and i looked down the pew and there was no one there and i looked at the door and i had a realization a wake-up call i don't think any of them are coming back i think i'm it and so i had a bit of a epiphany that i thought well maybe If I go too, there's not going to be anybody left in their 20s at the church. Mm. So I thought, what's going to happen to the church? And my wake up call was, well, I suppose if someone doesn't hang around, it's always going to keep that trend moving forward. Because teenagers had been leaving the church almost as a matter of course, right through the late 80s and into the early 90s. So that's what. Uh, got me thinking about sticking around and starting Solis so that was a bit of a wake up call
1: yeah and I think you bring that up um, reminds me of a little point that Rainer talks about he says it's called the uh, Alito Alito in a particular moment has an is slash should be discernment moment when they recognise the things how they are and then they feel that there needs to be a change and they clearly see what changes Mm. need to be made and sometimes he says it's an inner conviction and other times it's often um, some outside influences that Mm reveal that to, to them sometimes people get in church consultants I mean Tom Rayner is a church consultant he helps people try and get to that moment um, I was just wondering were you able to come up with a, an awareness moment Tim or do you, you didn't get to that
2: point I was just thinking uh, of a couple of sort of key moments that I've had of, uh, I guess awareness moments uh, where I don't know if it's necessarily changed practice but deepened practice so w- one I was, was many years ago teaching on the Ten Commandments Uh, and there was one particular child who um, I had struggled for a number of years to kind of engage uh, and part of it was he was just incredibly intelligent and everything we did kind of bored him to sobs even when I was trying to pitch at the rest of the group. Um, But there was a moment there where we were talking about uh, the Ten Commandments and we looked at the distinction between Exodus 19 and Exodus 20 and for the importance of the fact that they were being given these Ten Commandments as a saved people. Um, and so it's as, as a saved people now live this way. And we just talked about how we can sometimes get those in the wrong order. We can think about how we've got these lists of rules, and maybe if we follow the rules, fingers crossed, God might let us into his family, God might let us into his kingdom. Um, but the really significant part of Genesis 20 is that Genesis, 9, sorry, Exodus 20, Exodus 19 comes beforehand where um, God is saying to his people, I have. Rescued you on eagle's wings, and therefore this is how you are to live. Um, And there's great parallels with Paul, where he will talk about, you know, you have been saved by grace, and therefore now do the good works God has prepared in advance for you to do. Um, And we're going through that, and I was confronting, um, I was just, I mean, communicating to the kids this truth and how important it was to get it in the right order, not the wrong order. And there was this moment of clarity in this particular child that i have been struggling to work out how to engage, that he, all of a sudden the lights came on behind his eyes and he realised, oh, this is really significant. Now, what it meant for me was, I mean, there was great joy in seeing it connect with him. But in terms of my own leadership, um, has just continued to help me reflect on what's the best way to continue to try and shape communication in such a way that you do um, help to see the transformational change in people. Um, and in you know, the children that we're leading, and having that um, awareness of really sort of getting speaking to the heart um, of the kids, and being able to help them to see, you know, the, the practical and real pastoral implications of those kind of things. So they're the kind of the moments that mm. I sort of think back to, think, oh, that was a really pivotal moment. Wanted to work out of that, deepen my own mm. reflection, make sure I've got really good questions that I'm engaging. Um, with so that you can actually see this, um, yeah, the real shaping of discipleship. Mm. That's
1: a really lovely moment. Mm, yeah, very on. cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I was going to ask the question, as in regards to that, because that's uh, that boy that you're talking about, he had a, the lights came on, he had his own moment of awareness. Do you th- possibly, I'm wondering why do you think that some uh, leaders and churches um, may push against even that awareness, like even if that awareness has been revealed to them somehow, that they might uh, resist that in a, in a sense that is it because they, they might not be keen on the conflict that might arise from that having to make some changes or uh, the some leaders said in the Rainer's research that the pain was too great for the potential gain that they might get. If they face reality, they'd be compelled to make um, changes then that would create conflict. I'm just wondering what your response would be to that and how, how – do you think that we, in your experience or in the churches that you've experienced, do we actually decide to, or we don't want to actually make be aware of what needs to happen?
2: I mean, we certainly can be. and um, uh, you know, I trust that Rainer has done his research and he's noticing real things that happen in churches. Uh, and potentially, I mean, there's a number of people who are just naturally conflict diverse. I think i would be naturally conflict diverse. And so thinking about confronting people um, with... Um, belief changes, or attitudinal changes, or practice changes um, that were contrary to their own spiritual health and vitality um, is not something that I relish. You know, I don't look and get excited about correcting people. Um, <laughs> yeah. But there, I think part of how we imagine ourselves as a church and our relationship to those that we lead and those that we're in ministry. With is really significant. And we talked a couple of times about, um, you know, Rainer's using a sort of a businessy type model being based on a, a business book. And there's, I talked a couple of weeks ago about my hesitation about mm. the influence of business type language and methodology and. Um,
1: proof texting. Yeah,
2: well, yeah, the there's Bible. the proof texting issue. But even just the way that we, if we think about church as a business, um, can have some. Uh, Shadows uh, and downsides that we might not intend. Um, I like thinking about the church more in that kind of organic sense. We talk about um, the church being, you know, family or body or you know, it's even the the house image of we're all bricks being put together. Those kinds of things. And what it means is that if I look at those who I'm ministering to as my brothers or sisters or family, if I've got those kind of images of mind or even the the friendship model which Stu's talked a lot about the ecclesi- ecclesiological category of friendship mm. um, then I want the best for them um, and so when it comes to moments of pointing out potentially painful moments um, it's done out of the love and the concern of actually seeing, wanting to see the best for that person even if what I'm going to be pointing out or correcting in that person is painful mm. but it's also done in you know, a um, place of love, uh, and um, yeah, I mean it's easier to think about times as a parent where you have to correct your child um, or you know shape them, discipline them in a particular way for their own good, you know, for, so that they will become shaped even better as a person who they, you know, we want them to mm-hmm. be under God. And it's the same with those we minister to. It's, it's out of a genuine concern for them. It's a love for them. Um, and because we love them, because we genuinely want the best for them, um, then we are going to step into those hard moments sometimes in order to have to push against things that they believe or feel or act or do, which are not according to God's good design. I think mm. that's yeah important.
1: Stu, what do you think about the kind of uh, dichotomy between awareness and conflict and Maybe you might want to talk about how we kind of handle that at Sora Bible, like looking to make change but also being um, willing to do it lovingly among the congregation um, and yeah, I just would like to get your thoughts on that, what do you think? Yeah, I think, I think that
0: many ministers have a static strategy that they've implemented in church and so if culture changes the strategy doesn't have built into it a change methodology whereas the methodology or strategy that we've uh, taken a few years to work out is a change management strategy and so we call it the shock absorber which we've called the whole um you know podcast about but the idea is that uh if we bring christians together to have a conversation about faith together as a part of our regular um life together we have a place where young people who tend to be more flexible can actually be sharing with the older people who tend to have a bit more biblical wisdom and have a bit more um Life experience? Uh, Yeah, life experience and bring a bit of strength Mm -hmm. to the flexibility. Bringing those together in a church means that there's an ongoing everyday conversation about change. It doesn't mean that we wait for these big epochs to happen and then try and work out how we adjust to them. Mm -hmm. It's like we're always changing through iterative design because we're listening to each other. And we also try and reduce conflict between generations or different people because sometimes in churches the young people and the adults can be conflictual over resources or over uh, emphasis, you know what songs are being sung in the service, what style is the service, Uh, are there enough services and mission opportunities and discipleship opportunities for a certain age group whereas being an intergenerational ministry that has an iterative design means that we have formal moments of uh, awareness every year where we have a review and a planning every year and our planning day, which happens to be tomorrow in our case, yep. actually. So that's a formal uh, thing we put in place. Sometimes we put in formal forums for topics that come up in our culture that we're all talking about. So we're going to have a forum on what's going on with the Australian Anglican Church uh, before the end of the year to give people an opportunity to share their thoughts and talk about it. And then through that, we talk about ministry Activity that f- can flow from that review pro- pro- process, so that we plan into the future. So tomorrow we're going to be planning for 2030, and we're going to be talking about how can we plan to continue to do discipleship, mission, and and supply resources for those things together as a community. So yeah, so our approach is a bit more uh, organic, more flexible, as Tim said. But I do think sometimes it's really difficult if I've got a static model of church and I apply that really well for five years and then in the next five years it's sort of still working but then in 10 years' time it's not working, it's a really big thing to go, what do we do next? It's not immediately obvious, even if we did want to engage in the conflict, how we would move forward together. So I, I think it it bodes well for churches to have some kind of ongoing place to continue to think together and most churches have an agm and it's not hard to develop an agm for example into a review and planning process is quite formal but then also to create spaces where young people and older people can come together Mm. to talk about being christian in a changing world
1: i think that was a great point about the static model i think that's where is often coming from is that there are some static models and he's, he's mainly looking at American churches that they mm-hmm. may have some static models in there and that's perhaps why his language is also a little bit harsher too because mm-hmm. he's like no you need the wake up call you need to make the change mm-hmm. again but the problem is if you don't have a model that is perhaps integrating change constantly yeah then you need to keep making those changes yeah, that you're yeah.
0: it's almost like waiting for the midlife crisis and then you go and buy yourself a red sports car <laughs> or do you actually <laughs> kind of just adapt and grow as as you get older so yeah. as the church grows and gets older they just keep being flexible and changing but yeah if you if you wait till the crisis moment to have that awareness moment i mean the thing about last night is the fun thing about that concert was it didn't shock me or shatter my worldview that there was a whole heap of middle-aged people going to see <laughs> the Hoodoo Gurus. And the other thing is they're not the only band I like. Like, you know, I was listening to um, Jungle on the way in. That's not the most trendy, up-to-date band, but, you know, my, my music has continued to change and grow as I've left the 80s. I don't just listen to 80s music anymore. Uh, But, yeah, if there are churches that are still just listening to 80s music and (laughs) they haven't changed since for 30 years or 40 years, whatever it is, then uh, I think Hoodoo Gurus are celebrating the 43rd year or some crazy amount of time. But I think, um, yeah, just listening to new music and and continuing to grow and change as you grow as a person means you avoid those midlife crisis Mm. moments, I think.
1: What do you think that... um, We talked about like using the the older saints in the church to provide biblical Mm. wisdom and um help the younger crew who bring maybe some newer fresher ideas to try and um, work together on that what do you think that the 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 spiritual maturity is part of that conversation of whether they're young or old like uh, does that factor into how willing people are perhaps in the church willing to make change i I think church is messy and Mm. all of us aren't
0: perfect Sometimes church models put a lot of focus, rightly so, on the leadership, which this model does, mm. of trying to work out what's going on, but my, my view is more of more influenced by Francis Schaeffer from the 1960s where he says a leader, I think if I remember correctly, in one of his books he wrote, a leader shouldn't be seeking higher office, they should be invited to higher office, and there's a really different way that you lead if you've been invited to lead that way. Um, kind of has happened for me in my life. I was a youth minister by being invited to be a youth minister, and then I was a youth minister for 20 years, and then after I left in Church, I was invited to be a church planter. So, you know, that's really great. If if that's um, it's not to say that it's not also great for people to see a need and step up to the need and and put their hand up for that. That's also really good. But these categories that Reina seems to have of awareness, belief, belief, and, and crisis. crisis yeah. I think rather than seeing that as a moment that the church needs to change in, I see it as a lifestyle Mm. of constantly being aware, constantly. um,
1: Being ready for change. Being
0: ready for change with understanding your belief set. And then when a crisis does occur, hopefully it's putting out little spot fires along the way rather mm. than trying to put out a big bushfire because it's incredibly discombobulating, which I love that word, uh, when you've got to change the whole approach of things and things seem like they're going to die if you don't. I think mm. that's a... I read something in Sydney Morning Herald this morning. that said I think it was Sydney Morning Herald. Anyway, one of the papers I read this morning said that the new midlife crisis is in your 50s. And I always have a giggle when people say things like that, like 50s, the new forty and all that kind of stuff. But it's interesting because we are living longer and people are sometimes putting off decisions that they would have made earlier in other generations. Mm -hmm. I think we're trying to stay
1: younger for longer. Yeah, I Mm
0: -hmm. think so. So we're kind of putting off the inevitable by saying I'm still, you know, hoodoo gurus are still hip and happening. Oh, they're not. They're all old crisis what am i going to do with it well i went to the concert (laughs) expecting to see heaps of people in their 50s so when the lights (laughs) turned on i just went oh yeah here's all these old dudes here we are together and they were all so so mature in their approach to the band that there was no moshing going on when once upon a time it was one of the most furious moshes i've ever been in so that wasn't a crisis it was a change so seeing changes early avoids crisis as well so rather than that being part of my Uh, Breakout moment I think I personally think There's lots of little Breakout Mm. moments Along the way
1: Mm. Tim did you have Something to add there Thought you gave the look that you were, you were ready to go.
2: No, I can't even remember the question, mate.
1: Oh, I thought you had, no, I thought you had a, a point bursting out of your brain. No. It just needed to come no. <laughs> Okay. It might have burst out of his brain. It, <laughs> it might have completely burst
0: out, out yeah. of his brain. Yes, it's flown the coop. Yeah, it's on oh, its way to Cremola. <laughs> it's, it's already <laughs> passing Miranda.
1: <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, there was a quote there in the book that he talked about, Charles Spurgeon. And mm-hmm. it's more in relation to um, perhaps quantifying the spiritual growth of members and if it's declining or if it perhaps is increasing. And it was quite interesting. So Charles Spurgeon says, It has been noted that those who object to numbers are often brethren whose unsatisfactory reports should somewhat humiliate them. Uh, So numbers are probably part of the conversation, but just one helpful indicator of a church. We kind of talked about, sorry, the indicator of what the health of a church is. We talked about this previously in in numbers that can form part of the conversation. But... What I think we're talking about is that again, it's a, a. This book is coming from a. You come to that an absolute moment where you need to, like, really dig everything up and change everything. What? How would we like to see that differently in terms of the numbers of the church? Are we just looking for numbers to grow up, or how do we maybe um, uh, have a metric for measuring spiritual growth? Is that something that we try and do, or is it something that we kind of looked and? to not worry too much and then just use it as part of our the way that we look at our church?
2: Yeah, I think um, measuring spirituality um, mm. and spiritual growth and spiritual maturity is uh, difficult. Uh, and there's a lot of different ways that people have tried to tackle this problem. Uh, we talk about it in children's ministry all the time and I'm often having conversations with children's ministers, um, particularly because children also uh, quite likely have a spiritual maturity beyond what they themselves can articulate. And so how do you measure Mm,
1: the spiritual maturity of Mm. a child
2: Mm, who may have a deeper sense of Jesus and God than Mm. they actually have the words to describe? And so one of the thoughts um, I did have about your earlier comment about spiritual maturity and the the young people and old people is it's, It's an easy trap to fall into to think that those who are older or have been Christians longer are actually more spiritually mature. It may not be the case. So what are you looking for when you're thinking about spiritual maturity? And the Bible gives us some indication, particularly in Paul's letters, I'm thinking of parts where he gives us the characteristics of Christians, the things that we should be putting on and putting off. So the types of people who are not angry and wrathful and um, uh, licentious and yeah, all those things that the Bible tells us to put off because they are no longer part of who we are. If we've been adopted into Christ, then and these, because we are in Christ, we are to image Christ and therefore these are the types of characteristics that we should be putting on. And so that would be a significant measure of spiritual maturity is the, how Christ-like is someone because that is an indication of how the Spirit is working their life, the spiritual fruits that they are developing. If you use Jesus' language from John uh, 14, 15, 16 about the vine, you know, how deeply are they connected to Jesus? How much are they drawing their life source, um, their characteristics, the, the things that they value, the things that are important to them, the way that they are praying, all of those things will give an indication of how mature those people are. Mm. So that would be some of the things that you would be looking out for. And also knowing that because spiritual maturity is not connected to age necessarily, therefore it wouldn't surprise us that there might be some young people in the church who are more spiritually mature than people who are generations older than them. And that is one of the reasons I think that intergenerational church is so significant where there's a humility to listen to those of other generations uh, because there may be people, even those who are younger than you, that actually may have insight into God, his world, his word that you have not considered. And so part of the mutual co-contribution that comes through intergenerational church is that recognition that uh, God can be working in his spirit to bring alive and to mature people of all different ages at different Mm -hmm. seasons of their life, mm. so there would be some of the indicators, and that was uh, thinking about that in terms of the number question. Uh, I think the numbers are not always a good metric because of we would expect that in a non-Christian world there is going to be antagonism and pushback against the gospel. And yet we also know that in God's good creation, when we do communicate the gospel well and we apply it to the lives of the world, that, that people will see and be attracted. So there's a key verse where you know, it talks about the gospel being the um, essence of life to many and the stench of death to many. And so we would expect that as we go about faithful ministry and we're faithfully communicating the gospel that it will be really attractive to many. And by God's grace, he does work on the hearts and minds of people to unblind their eyes and to call them to himself through the ministry of the local church. So we should see numbers grow from that point of view. But we will also see people who hear the gospel and think of it as the stench of death and walk away. And so it's not a one-for-one correspondence that faithful ministry therefore equals growth in numbers, and the other thing we talked about a couple of weeks ago is you can artificially or unfaithfully grow numbers by doing other things that are not gospel ministry. Free beer. Yeah. If you had free beer at church every week, you'd have a lot of people there uh, that may not actually be interested in Jesus mm. at all.
1: But interested in the beer.
2: <laughs> That's right. Mm. And I mean, this is a conversation we have thinking about youth ministry. We have uh, our... By locals. the way, we're
0: not advocating to... We're not have, advocating to free food. I just wanted to say that <laughs> no. just in case <laughs> someone takes that out of context. Sorry, Timo, I interrupted you.
2: No, that's all right. No, But I think uh, the the immediate context for us is, I mean, we've got a couple of our staff members right now who are out at local high school and they run a lunchtime group, um, which is called Chip Lunch. And often, not every week, they take some hot chips with them And for, I mean, for 30 years, Stu, you've been involved more or less in these kind of ministries and there has always been the case that there are teenagers who want to go for the hot chips and aren't interested in Jesus.
0: We call them seagulls. Seagulls,
2: yeah. There's (laughs) lots of seagulls around the outside. And so you do have, and so if you've got something that is interesting, you may have a really large lunchtime group at your school because you provide tons of hot chips. Um, Now, is that... Large number representative of faithful ministry, uh, it's actually they're not they're not necessarily connected, you know. And so, what we want to see is long term fruitfulness. And there's going to be other metrics other than numbers. So I think Spurgeon is helpful, um, and I think yeah we wouldn't be able to nuance that in a lot of different ways. Mm.
0: I a couple of things i'll say to that is sometimes we can hide behind that too though we can say oh if that ministry is growing they must be just offering free beer yeah and yeah you're, and you're definitely we're really cynical about yeah, it yeah. which is unhelpful. Also, also the phrase of is it real ministry or not i think um i think sometimes crowds come to the gospel uh, crowds come to a carol service crowds come to Christmas and Easter doesn't mean that because there's lots of people there that aren't actually interested in living for Jesus, it's not a fruitful ministry. Well, And you're not saying that. But, no, 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 but, no. I just
2: wanted to sort of also illustrate that yeah. by saying that massive crowds follow Jesus. Well, I was about to go there. Yeah. That's what I was about to say. Right, yeah, like yeah.
0: we can't say Jesus didn't have a faithful ministry Absolutely. because Absolutely. he was offering free food. Because a lot of people went for the free food miracles. Yeah. miracles. Mm. And that wasn't making his ministry unfaithful. What Absolutely. That, what that, and that wasn't bad growth. I mean, again, Rainer's, you know, helpfully trying to get some boundaries and some reference points but we've got to be careful to say that because something's big and there's a lot of people who've come for chip lunch who aren't Christians doesn't mean it's necessarily an unfaithful bad growth Um, the thing about our ministry at the school at the moment is you have swings and roundabouts with that that we're taking chips to the school so that we can sit down and have a meal together at the school because it's a portable meal. It's really easy to use. When too many people come along just for the chips, we just stop taking chips and saying, Well, we're here for the main thing we're here for is fellowship and to read the Bible together. And if you're keen to do that, you can have some chips with us too. But we're not mm-hmm. here to attract you all with the chips. But they think that's what we're doing because we live in a, a consumeristic society where people market things all the time mm. and they throw out some freebies and they misinterpret chips as an mm. advertising device. Excuse me. So, I, yeah, I think I think what you're saying is really good, and that's another that good
2: discernment, yeah. like on the on the hearts of those students who come, because what we communicate by not taking the chips for a couple of weeks is mm. actually the most important thing. The most important thing has always been here, whether we have chips or not, yeah. is that we want to know you and introduce you to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for some, that's going to be actually it was really nice getting the chips, but I can see that these people genuinely care about them and they actually really want me to know Jesus. I'm going to take that invitation seriously Mm. and they're going to dig deeper and then there's going to be those who say they weren't really here for the chips they were really here to introduce me to jesus i want none of that and they'll walk away so that um the the act of bringing the chips sometimes not bringing the chips sometimes helps each of those individual students who come to discern for themselves uh, how seriously they're going to take the faithful ministry that is happening every week, and it just kind of highlights that as well. And
0: if, if they've never been to church before and they come along, of course they're not going to come along to serve Jesus first. No, of course well, not. They're going to come yeah. and check it out, and yeah. that's okay. The other thing is that Jesus gave the fish and chips to all the <laughs> crowds, all this bread and fish, but yeah. I like, like the fish and chips analogy. But he did that out I of compassion, right? Salt. <laughs> Yeah, well, he did it out of compassion. He had compassion on the crowds. They didn't have anything to eat, so he, so he fed the crowds. So he wasn't using it as a vehicle to try and get them to come and follow him. He was uh, teaching them in the midst of that. Two more things I'd like to say is, one is that um, sometimes we can over-spiritualize smallness as well. We can mm. say, oh, we're only really serious about the gospel if we're getting together with four or five people and we're really studying the Bible together, which is good. But if we're going to disciple-committed Christians, we'll be on mission together. And when we're on mission together, just as you said before, if Jesus is the vine and we are part of the vine, then we will bear fruit and we'll bear much fruit. And part of that fruit is we'll tell others about Jesus and part mm. of that fruit will be some will respond. So I do think we need to build in growth in numbers into our equation. Some There are some lean times in the history of the church where the cultural is so the culture is so hostile to the gospel, particularly in countries around the world where persecution is quite intense and it's actually quite difficult. To grow I mean in the early church there was times where people weren't allowed to go to church until they proved they were a Christian because it was so dangerous to just invite anyone to come along to church that if the Romans found out where the church was they'd come in and arrest everyone <laughs> so there's different things for different times but I would say that uh, we can't uh, be um, trapped into thinking that small is good and large is not good as well I think that that, that That's interesting. One, then the second point I'd make is that, in my thoughts, the actual structure or the way or the style that a church is run needs a certain critical mass. So if a church is running like a Bible study, it doesn't matter if there's four people coming and they bring one non-Christian friend. But if you've set up to pay the rent of a place or keep a, 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 a building going, pay a staff member, run a service, then it does need a certain number of people to run that. And I think what happens in a crisis point for some churches is what the model they've set up themselves isn't sustainable mm. with less people. Yep. So rather than it being you know a theological question about big or small, it's actually a practical question about can we actually run a service based on the number of people we've got and unfortunately when a church hits that crisis moment that is a wake-up call because they're like well we don't have enough money or we don't have enough this and sometimes sadly churches don't know where to go and they've only got in their mind to keep the static approach running until it doesn't have enough people to run it anymore and that that's happens in many occasions too
1: that was going to be my next question, really, is related to kind of structure. And he says that, in Tom Rainer says again, is that uh, there's humility. Humility is a key characteristic of what he terms a level six leader. Um, and he uses an example of uh, someone, a leader in a church who he um, put it down to his independent Baptist upbringing in terms of independent church that he was at. He felt that he had to do everything himself. But it does say that. Um, churches continue to manage to grow when they have actually built structures within themselves mm. that can actually raise up lay leadership underneath it. Mm. Um, I was just wondering what your thoughts are about that and what we've learned since we um, started Soul Revival Church in doing that. One of my favorite things um, about leadership is, it comes from, I think, it comes from a business background, but it's like the the role of one of the one of the main roles of you as a leader is to make yourself redundant in terms of they can step people can step up and take on some of your roles, so then you can continue to expand what you're able to do. Is that something that we should look at as church leaders as well? And also, what do what do we do at Sore Revival and via the shock absorber method to create those structures and and raise up people into leadership? I think that um, there are lots of different
0: models for pastors to raise up ministers. I think Ephesians 4 talks about the fact that there are pastors so that we can raise up people for ministry and I think it's a really good thing to do. Uh, some of it's personality based, different personalities have different ways of doing it but there are structures and there is people work so we do need to have structures that are commiserate with the size of the gathering that we've got and at Sorrel Revival, we've kind of, maybe for another time, another podcast, but we've come up with a three-step structural process based on different sized cars so we've talked about a very small gathering of maybe a bible study being like a vespa like those little motorbikes that run around they they have wheels and an engine and a steering wheel but they don't have much more and a seat and that's all they need for a small group of people but if you then get more people coming to your bible study you need to maybe go move towards starting a formal service then we're saying you know maybe you know 25 to 60 people is kind of like Bare minimum, fifty is kind of like a, you know, sort of sustainable size. But you want to even be growing beyond that to say eighty. I think in in what we would call a beetle. So that's almost like your first your first car. And then the third step is if that grows to become bigger again, and you've got a a, a bigger formal service that's now starting to get big enough to even send out other church plants. You're talking, you know, hundred and fifty to 200 people. Uh, So we've tried to look at those three different sized churches, apply this metaphor of these three different cars and then work through what sort of ministry teams do we need for each of those different size groups of people and if any of the listeners or viewers are interested we could get you some more information about that, mm-hmm. um, done a bit of thinking about that. Yeah. yeah,
1: no, I think it's a really good thing to keep thinking about. The other thing is talking about Tom Rainer's kind of ABC moment he goes from awareness so realising that something needs to happen then belief uh, some people think oh do I need to do this, some uh, leaders can really find it difficult. He says to look at um, some of the great stories of faith in the church mm. to to keep going which I think is a a really good encouragement that to to get out of the book um my last question is related to the crisis moment that he talks about and we can wrap the podcast up after this i suppose but um rainer talks about there's a higher cost of moving churches forward i think that we've kind of said that we don't we hope not to get to that point as a church because we're trying to uh, institute change or bring about change a little bit quicker than Perhaps what the static mod, a static model would allow, um, but there is still a high cost of making changes. Um, I know last week you talked about um, a time was thinking. You had a couple of times in your ministry where you thought you thought it was over. I'm just wondering what changed as an encouragement to uh, to any leaders that are listening to this and like thinking this is going to be difficult if I want to make some change.
0: Yeah, so bringing the team together to have a <laughs> conversation, discerning how many of us are keen to continue to persevere, is really important. And the second thing I like to do is continue to do what was working, even if it's not working as well, and then build a bridge to a new reality so that if that new thing I'm doing doesn't work, I can come back to being where I am. So I don't sort of have a static model where, oh, this static model's not working anymore, let's burn that to the ground and start a new thing. What I like to do is keep this going, whatever A is, build a bridge to B, and then if B works, we move over the bridge to B. But if b doesn't work b comes back and Mm. moves over to a again and we look for a new idea so sometimes you have got to build three or four bridges before you work out something that might work and then sometimes it only kind of works so then you can keep the two things going at the same time until Mm. you adjust together so so also having patience and not panicking is really Mm. important at that crisis point and not losing your composure Mm. um there's a One of my favourite movies is an anti-war movie called A Bridge Too Far, which ironically is kind of talking about this bridge concept. <laughs> and it was about, um, in the Second World War, the Allies tried to move too quickly to end the war because obviously they wanted to finish it because it was becoming so protracted and bloody and was getting worse and worse every year. So one of the generals, this guy called Montgomery, thought, why don't we actually just have this like lightning movement across Holland from France and then get round into the Raw Valley in Germany and then uh, the war will it's be cool. ended.
1: Operation Market Garden? Market right? Garden,
0: yeah. yeah. It was actually a big disaster because mm-hmm. they parachuted in all these regiments to certain bridges and then the tanks were supposed to come up the roads and liberate those bridges as they went. And they did right up until Arnhem, but Arnhem Bridge was just one bridge too far. They went a bit too fast. And the um, the thing about that movie... That really strikes me is even when that was failing at the Arnhem Bridge they interviewed the commanding officer of the British paratroopers that were at that bridge fighting this rearguard action by this stage where they had to retreat back across the Rhine to get away from because they they weren't able to get the supplies to them and um in the movie he's shown you know running around in the rubble and they're all fighting each other the 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 two sides and uh Apparently when the movie was made in the 1960s, this officer who was there at Arnhem had escaped and survived and he was actually an older man by the 60s and he went to the premiere of the movie and the reporter said to him after the movie, what did you think of the movie, sir? And he said, it's very realistic except the bit where they had me running around (laughs) under fire. He said, I never ran around under fire, I only walked under fire. And so apparently the fact that they showed him running across the road when there was people shooting at him was not right he would walk across the road and they said why did you walk around sir and he said well i didn't want to show fear in the face of the enemy and i also didn't want to scare my own troops by running around Mm -hmm. and i think sometimes leaders can be running around under under barrage of a crisis and actually forget the impact that has on everybody else in their team Uh, and interestingly they then interviewed the director and said well if you knew that he didn't run around why did you depict him running around and the director said we didn't think people would believe it we think it would look too Hollywood. So we wanted to make it more realistic by having him run, running around <laughs> on under fire because we didn't think the audiences would believe it. So I think for me, as you are trying to build bridges, try not to do it too quickly. Try to have experiments together that are enjoyable and sustainable and do it in a way that if it doesn't work, you don't burn anyone and don't hurt anybody and you can just come back to what you were doing. We don't laugh at failure, but when things don't work, we name it and say that's a lesson. What can we learn from it and how can we move on? But the other thing is for us as leaders during um, crisis of a crisis, we need to walk under fire as best we can. And if we're not coping under the crisis, we need to reach out to get help from other people who can support us so that we can do the best we can to walk under fire. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think that was a fantastic way to end it. a very uh, legacy leader moment again, thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making fun of you, that's an encouraging moment thank yeah, you no no. Worries, mate. Um, mm-hmm. thank you very much for joining us on the Shock Absorber end. thank you very much, thank you for everyone listening or watching uh, please join the conversation if you would like to keep talking about the things that we're talking about, we'd love you to register for the Shock Absorber conference which is on the 29th of October this year, come and check that out on shockabsorber.com.au uh, you can email, always email me at joel at shockabsorber and um, jump on the Discord too if you're keen to keep chatting about it. As always, we like to thank our producer Dave, who is behind the camera. You may not be able to see him, but he's always there doing an excellent job uh, recording and editing for us. And uh, once again, I'll thank Tim and Stu for your time. Thank you yeah. very much. And yeah, thank you, Joel. It was really good. No worries. Thanks. It was, it was a fun conversation. We're well, going yeah. to keep it up. Okay. And we'll finish that up and with a one way.
0: One way.